in the pandemic, books were not socially distant from us. It was one of the comforts for a lot of people. There were books to read and books to follow and books to look forward to. But one of the strange things about reading, although it's done silently and it's done alone most of the time, that you want to share books, that if you like a book, you want someone else to read it, that you love the idea of a book that is, in a way, being, being part of the community or part of a community of readers. With that in mind, the art of reading is a way of bringing readers together. It's a way of choosing books that I think people might like because they have given me a lot of pleasure and having a discussion about these books and bringing people together so that we all know that it's not just that reading is a form of pleasure, which it also is, but it's an art. It's actually a way for us to engage intellectually and imaginatively with words, with sentences, with what writers have done. And um, so for that reason, um, I want to share these books that have mattered so much to me. Kevin, if you could just start by giving us um, a flavor of the book, um, White City. Yes, um, we were speaking about mothers earlier on, so I'm going to read a short section in which Ben, my narrator, in the midst of his ill-fated attempt to get rich by partaking in a crooked property deal in the Balkans, goes to visit his mother. Um, I don't think I'd like to take this opportunity to state publicly that the mother in my book bears no resemblance to my actual mother. <laughs> um, it's a pity she isn't here to hear that. Um, <laughs> it, it'll be on the recording, so we're sending recording. her a message. I will, I will send this, her. Not this. you, not you, not you. <laughs> um, the next day, I cabbed it to my parents' house to find out what my mother wanted. My original intention, of course, had been to ignore her summons, but my curiosity got the better of me. The vibe in the house was approximately that of Hitler's bunker, circa April 1945. The curtains were drawn and the walls were bare. Through the open door of my father's study, a landslide of bankers' boxes spilled, shedding documents, notepads, folders, newspapers. My father himself was not in evidence. The hallway smelled of mildew and of something else, of vague sepsis. The kitchen looked uninhabited like a showroom. On the counter, a laptop displayed a website, Hartford Realty, luxury homes in Connecticut, Vermont, and Maine. Beside it, a golf magazine invited its readers to kill your slice and pure your irons. Halfway down the garden, my mother was refilling the wire seed containers that hung from her bright blue wooden birdhouse. This was part of her daily routine. Birds were her acknowledged hobby. She kept an encyclopedia of Irish species on her bedside table and a pair of sniper-grade binoculars by the Belfast sink. Every morning, she put fresh orange peel around the flower beds to ward off the neighbor's cats. The seed containers attracted chaffinches, goldfinches, pied wagtails. My mother cleaned the wire cages twice a week, wearing disposable rubber gloves to protect her from avian flu. Look at that. I suppose I can't avoid acknowledging at this point that my mother did, in fact, have a life outside drinking. She had birds. She had even taught me the names of birds when I was a kid. I'd forgotten that till now. She also taught me to dislike magpies, ill-mannered birds, she always said, thieves and jeerers. For her, the rules of politeness applied even to members of the animal kingdom. That was my mother. She could forgive anything except bad manners. 
On the patio table, I had now stepped outside, reposed a half-empty bottle of Chardonnay and a tray of empty wine glasses. After a moment, my presence seemed to cause some quantum fluctuation in the air. My mother became aware of me and pivoted, shading her eyes with a palm. Since you're here, she called, you might as well pour me a fresh glass. Through the greened-in branches of maples and birches above her head, the sunlight was finely tangled. I poured a glass for myself while I was at it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, the, this is the opening of White City. Confession number one. I'm a sick man. I'm an angry man. I think my wit's diseased. Could you last that? Could you give us like... Um, uh, where you were when you thought of that sentence, or those, uh, <laughs> well, well, it's one, it's two sentences. Um, and could you help us? Yeah, I can tell you exactly where I was and when I was. It was Christmas 2015, and I was in the Black Rock Shopping Centre in South County, Dublin. And I was Christmas shopping with my wife. She was not yet my wife. We were engaged at the time. And I had, I had come through a crisis um, in my writing life and in my life more generally. I had published my first novel when I was 27 um, and it had done reasonably well um, and I had then found myself unable to write another novel and working through that crisis had led me to had led me to realize that what had what, what was blocking me was a sense of anger at how out of control my life felt when I published that novel. I was very young, 27. I was even younger than that, I think, emotionally. And uh, I had found the experience of having a novel sort of taken out of my hands, printed, published, reviewed, bought for the movies, adapted for the movies. I'd found it completely and bewildering. And become a famous movie. And become, yeah, yeah, successful and very good film. Lenny Abrahamson directed. Um, I found it completely bewildering, and I had, I had gradually, I had got sort of, sort of so angry uh, without being aware of it, because everything, because it's supposed to be great, <laughs> yeah. you know. I would, if anyone had asked me how's how, how is your life going, I would have said brilliant, you know. But actually, I think I was, I was unprepared, and so I was. I had recently, shortly before I thought of those opening lines, I, I had, uh, I'd become aware that I was angry, and this had really helped me to start cracking open some of the feelings that, that had been concealed from me or I had been concealing from myself. And in a way, the, the dynamic of the book is about that precise experience of cracking open feelings that you have been concealing from yourself, which I'm very interested in as, a, as an experience because I think it's universal or near universal. And I thought, um, I, I thought I'm angry. And then I thought, because I have a very book-oriented uh, mind, I thought of the first line of Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground, Gracious. I, I, was, I was hoping you were going to say that. Oh, yes. Um, I'm a, which is, I'm a sick man. I'm a, I can't even remember Dostoevsky's well, version. Great. I've only got I mean, my version. I mean, this is, this is more or less a sort of a riff on it is, the yeah. opening of... Notes from Underground yeah. by Fyodor Dostoevsky. And uh, so I thought, I'm a sick man, I'm an angry man. And then I, another qu quotation popped into my head. I think yeah. my wit's diseased, and that's from Hamlet. Um, yeah. and so I had glued together two quotations, and I realized that I had a rhythm going and almost a yeah. voice. And from that, eventually, the novel unspooled um, with m much labor and um, pain and difficulty. Do, do you have a third source for this? Yes, John Banville's first ah, novel. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> I, was I was wondering if you knew that. 
I, oh yes, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. For John Banville's first novel, Nightspawn, also begins with a quotation from Dostoevsky's yeah. Notes from Underground. So um, you just imagine my surprise as I read this and think, <laughs> yeah, I think I think I know where he got this. And then and then I think, oh no, this got it in two places. <laughs> yeah. I, I, no. The wit's diseased. I didn't. Uh, that's that's actually Hamlet. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, my parents kept me home that week, so I never <laughs> did. I never did Hamlet. But uh, sorry, joke. But um, so so in, in other words, what you're doing in this moment in the supermarket as you're attempting to exit from this particular set of feelings is you're finding another mask for the feelings. Yeah. It's not as though you want to write a book describing the life of a young novelist who's had a huge <laughs> success in South Dublin who's totally miserable, but it is to find a metaphor, to find yeah. a character, to find a moment, and to find a literary style yes. that's going to actually provide you with enough cover in a way that, that, that you can deal with these emotions yeah. in a way that isn't, so let's say, isn't direct or isn't in a way narcissistic. Yeah, yeah. That's absolutely it. And, and a, a novel doesn't exist until, from my sense of it, uh, until a rhythm. Now, it's not even words, it's not vocabulary, it's not, I wouldn't even call it style, it's just a rhythm. It's, it's one sentence following another in a way that, that seems to me to contain enough rhythmic suggestion to give me the next sentence and then the sentence after that. Um, and, and, but that is, what is that but precisely finding a very narrow, well, it was really a very narrow channel through which to put all of this big chaos of emotion that you're trying to, you're trying to get in there. And that's, so, I mean, what you're saying is that a novel isn't its theme or it isn't its subject or its content. It isn't even, in a way, its style. It's something stranger. It's an undercurrent in the sound. And even though the reader is reading silently, you're on your own with the book and you can't hear the words, oddly enough, you can. That whatever way it is the words are, are on the page, they have an actual rhythm in, in, in that, that even in silence they have, which is the fundament, which is how you start, which is what the novel really depends on. Yeah. And it's like melody almost, that you can't have a song without a melody. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to write a novel at the moment, and what I have is chunks of what you could describe as you know, theme or plot or event. Um, but what I don't have is that rhythm yet. And, I'm, and I, so I try again and again to write a page or a page or two and to see if I can get the deeper rhythm. Because until that's there, the novel isn't there. And it's, it, it is, it's heard at that very, almost, yeah, kind of below the, below the threshold of con the conscious reading mind. And, and could that rhythm come in a supermarket where you're wandering around, you suddenly get a sound and that becomes a sentence and you write that down and you go home? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm always hoping for that for that moment. Yeah. Um, it's rare. Um, you're you're talking about your ther like, when I mean you, I mean you know what I mean. I'm talking about Ben, <laughs> <laughs> but um, Ben is talking about his mandatory sessions with his with his therapist, and he says, during my mandatory sessions with Doctor F, I have been availing myself of the therapeutic monologue, the therapeutic monologue, an undervalued art form, I feel. <laughs> and and in, in that, I, I'm, I'm hearing a whole lot of sly sound that I could hear, for example, in Nabokov, I could hear in Martin Amos, I could hear in Banville, just where you're making a, a sort of an insider joke about, well, you're obviously, since you're writing a therapeutic monologue, yes. <laughs> and then you can say an undervalued art form, meaning, you know, so um, that, that's effectively the, um, the sort of form of the book. Is, is, is a therapeutic monologue. Yeah. Could, you, could you just talk to us about, uh, well, I'm not sure I want you to go through every example beforehand of this, but there is that idea of someone who's been damaged, someone who's under pressure, 
someone who maybe hasn't spoken before, mm. setting out in literary terms um, the actual events that caused the breakdown. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, 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 there are many. Uh, I have many precedents for that that idea. Philip Roth was another, you know, um, great writer of therapeutic monologues, um, who kind of was at the back of my mind writing that line anyway. Um, it, it's risky writing a, a book this long in the first person, all in the same first person. That's risky, and I, you know, it may not work to everyone's taste. First person narratives should be relatively short, I think, um, because the danger is that, as with any therapeutic monologue, art will fall away and uh, a sort of hectoring, <laughs> you know, uh, narcissistic self-regard will, will come in and, and sort of derail it. And my, my counterweight to that was, was plot, um, was having a bunch of stuff happening, some, you know, events, um, which I thought would pull him out of the, the kind of narcissistic spiral. I mean, the other two sentences that could really throw light on the, on the overall book are, are um, money changed hands and buildings rose and fell. It was like living in earthquake country. And in, in a way, you get that in two countries. But I, but I think that the reason why you, you can do this first person um, over such a long book uh, um, is I think there are two things that make it work. One is that um, our hero, Ben, is a literary guy. You know, in, in other words, um, he's, he's, he's like... He's been working on Stephen Dedalus' Portrait of the Artist, but he, but he could be the student. There are certain moments where he could easily be the student in, in at Swim Two Birds, you know, just lying in bed, not getting up, not going to his lectures, and you know, re- reading books and you know, looking for looking for wins and gambling, and um, the um, so that he has to start with a literary style. So it isn't as though he's naive. And you have to keep thinking, would he know this? Would he say this? Would he write in this way? Since he's been doing his PhD, or since he's not been doing his PhD, but nonetheless, he's been thinking a lot about fiction. So, so he is, it is, in a way, a portrait of the artist as a young man. And I suppose the second thing is that you're able to just go Serbia, Dublin, and italics, so that you do have a texture, you can move from one to the other, which I think stops it, you know, if it, if it was ever becoming monotonous, which it doesn't do, that, there, that you've worked out, in, in a way, structural ways of stopping that. You know, that, that, uh, yeah. Yeah. And that, that took me an unbelievably long time. Um, and I, I'm sort of disappointed nobody's come to me and said, God, the structure of this is brilliant, because I spent forever yeah, trying to work that. it out. But thank you, Colin, for finally saying it. Um, uh, but yeah, and I mean, I had, I had charts, and I had maps, and I had post notes, and I had, you know, I showed, I showed this to my students a few years ago, and they said, well, this is like a little craft project. And I said, well, yeah, what do you think writing a novel is? <laughs> um, so, one... so give us the dates. So, so the first novel is published in? 2008. And this? 2021. So, um, when did this start? It started, actually, I wrote a version of what became that opening. Uh, it didn't have the Dostoevsky and it didn't have the Banville and all that, but a version of those first few pages shortly after my first novel came out. And I, looking back, it's interesting that I found myself writing a confessional monologue, a therapeutic monologue at that moment of when my life was about to change um, and become much more confusing and difficult in some ways. Um, and that's, I had about five pages and that sat, uh, neglected on my hard drive for a very long time. And then around about 2012, I had been in Serbia. I spent a week in Serbia or two weeks in Serbia um, on a, a kind of book event, literary festival in 2010. And it was, I mean, it wasn't quite this bad, but it was, 
strange. It was a strange experience. And, and I, I kept frantic notes while I was there of all the strange things that people were saying and doing. And I, I, I tried to turn it into a novel. And I, what I had there was this very knockabout comic novel, um, very, very hastily and badly written. And that sort of didn't go anywhere. Got about 200 pages. Put that aside. That wasn't going to work. And then after that, I started trying to write a novel about, essentially about Sean Fitzpatrick. Um, who fascinated me and whose trial I attended um, with my, my late dad, who was also very interested in his case. Um, and some of that stuff yeah. ended up in here Just as well. Describe this further. You and, you and your father went in every day? Not every day, no. We popped in, I think, a couple of times. Did you um, put on suits and stuff? or you know? No, we just, my dad was working in town at the time and I just met and him. And it was easy to get in? Wandered up. You could just go in. You could just walk in. You could just attend a trial in, in the uh, criminal courts of justice at Park Gate Street there. You can just walk in. Um, unless it's been, you know, uh, protected in some legal way that you know but the, in that case we did we were we were curious we were interested and uh, I found Fitzpatrick a really really interesting character I mean the dad you know doesn't really bear too much resemblance to him except in certain ways but he, the ghost of that idea a novel about about a Sean Fitzpatrick character is is very much here as well and it, 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 that it, moment of realizing that I had that voice the Dostoevsky voice almost, um, the therapeutic monologue voice, meant that I could then glue together or suture together, perhaps that's a slightly more elegant <laughs> way of describing the process, those, the Serbian material that I was kind of thinking about, wanting to write about an Irish banker um, during the last 10 years or so, and then my own, uh, I, I could find in these things an analogue for some of my, my own emotions. Um, I'll come back to that in a second, I just want to ask you, um, are you actually yourself an old barbarian? No. No, I'm not. Um, so I grew up in Rathcool in County Dublin, which is a kind of small town on the nice, off the nice dual carriageway, the N7. Um, and I went to a school there called Holy Family Community School, which was not a fee-paying school. And I had no idea schools of old barbarians even existed until I went to UCD um, as an undergrad to study English. Um, and there I met uh, people who had gone to Blackrock and Gonzaga and various other old South Dublin institutions and became fascinated by them. And novelists are fascinated by closed worlds, yeah. I think. And I, you know, I, I have felt I had stumbled upon this closed and coded world. Um, and I thought, God, I've got to write about this. And then Paul Harrod started writing about it and I thought, ah, shit. <laughs> um, but he does such a, a wonderful job and he, he himself has taught me a great deal about that world just from reading the Ross and Carl Kelly books. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I do not come from that world. I, 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 it certainly happened to me where you don't get told in Wexford, you know, in your diocesan boarding school, <laughs> that there is such a thing as that level of entitlement you're going to find when you, when you arrive in UCD and you go to your first history lecture and you realize that some of the undergraduates age 17 are already wearing suits and ties and they already know they're going to be barristers and then they know they're going to be judges. And not only that, but they did become barristers and they are judges. And uh, they spoke in a certain tone, they moved in a certain way and they all had been to either Gonzaga or Belvedere and they saw differences between <laughs> Belvedere and Gonzaga. I just saw their astonishing, I'm talking about, the, obviously they're all blokes, their astonishing levels of entitlement and the fact they didn't have to work in the summer and, and um, that, that, that you certainly, as, as an outsider there, you see, BlackRock didn't impinge because Black, forgive me, anyone from BlackRock, but in general, BlackRock people didn't 
come to do English. In, I mean, I know they, 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 you, you, you sort of didn't notice them as black rock people because the black rock people were actually rugby players and rugby players didn't tend to be interested, you know, in Henry James, you know. And, um, <laughs> but, but, it's, but it's certainly true that the way in which those rings were formed. And uh, look, there, there, there are certain moments in the book that, that, that are so iconic in, in White City. The moment where they decide, yes, if we're going to have a launch, it will be the Shelburne. And if we're going to do it, we need to have our fathers present. And of course, you have this sort of Hamlet figure whose father cannot be present, and whose mother is a sort of Gertrude wandering about. But the others are, they're, they're really a chip off the old block. And you watch that generational thing, that entitlement thing. And, you know, it, it seems natural and ordinary. But, I mean, it, it's also very dramatic when it's seen as, as, though from, as though chronicled, as though from outside. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I had the same experience, you know, a, a few years later when I was an undergrad at ECD. And I remember standing in the, the, the Forum Bar, which was the, the kind of the, the, the campus bar at the time. And looking around, at, at, and there had been there were a bunch of people who were in the literary and historical society, and they were in their suits, and they and they were you know, drinking and talking to one another. As and it was as if I were already looking at them in thirty years, uh, when they would be judges, lawyers, barristers, journalists, uh, and you know TDs. Um, and lo and behold, I have watched those people become those things. You know, people who were a year behind me in UCD English have been ministers for things, naming no names. Um, you know, they have become extremely powerful and influential in this in this country, and, and, and I had no I had no idea. And the revelation of of privilege uh, and and of, of the a sudden clear sense of how class perpetuates itself and how it operates um, struck me. As I said, struck me with such force that I have I've now written two novels about it. Um, which to some degree suggests that I, I can't get over it. Um, Could you talk to us about the first novel? The first novel, yeah. So I, Bad Day in Black Rock was d even more directly about that world than, than White City is. And it, it came out of um, a failed previous attempt to write a novel, which had been a, a kind of an attempt to write a, a sort of South Dublin you know, family novel, which would try and look at some of these themes. I was very young. I was about 23, 24 when I wrote that. And, but in it, I had alluded to um, a certain case that's well-known um, or was well-known at the time. And Frank McGuinness, who had been helping me with my work, had been a brilliant mentor. Um, he was teaching in UCD at the time, and I was there. And uh, he had circled this bit in the manuscript and said, we should write about that. And I thought, oh, Jesus, I can't do that. You know, But then I realized that I... I could and did, and I knew enough. I knew enough about this closed and coded world um, to make a story out of it. Because are we allowed to say what the what, what the newspaper story is? I I don't know. Are we probably? Well, it's, just, it's obvious. I mean, for anyone who reads the book, but just we need to yeah. say it now that you know it was it was the kicking of a guy to death outside Annabelle's nightclub, yeah. which was a big trial because, and it was very much watched trial because of the. Middle class, you know, these were middle class kids. These were effectively kids from Black Rock College, and um, so so that was, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought um, I, I realized that I could tell that story because I had been spying on these people, <laughs> going to parties in their houses, um, getting to know them, learning the codes of the world. I, may, I remember a friend I made in college. I went to a party in his house, and he brought us upstairs, and he opened his the wardrobe in his bedroom, the closet, if you will. And uh, in the closet was 
um, his old school uniform, preserved as if in, you know, mothballs. And I thought, what the hell is this? Um, it was Dorian Gray. It was like, you know, here's, here's who I am, preserved in, in the Dorian Gray attic of my, of my life. And I, I knew I had read at that point Cyril Connolly's Enemies of Promise, where he says that, you know, the experience of going through to one of the great English boarding schools is so dramatic and profound that everything else afterward in life seems like a disappointment. And that to me, which George Orwell made, completely took the piss out of because he said that's absolutely ridiculous. And he had gone to the same school as Cyril Connolly and knew whereof he spoke. But anyway, um, and I thought, this is real. This is a real phenomenon. These people have peaked in school. And to me, the idea that I would have had the best period of my life in sec secondary school is horrifying. And because, you know, school, you got through school and then you got out. That was how you felt about school as far as I was concerned. But this was different. And I knew that once, if you had someone, a bunch of people who lived in that world, then you had the material for a novel because novels are, they get they thrive. The novel form thrives on, 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 on rules, on, on identifiable codes of social behavior. And I knew I could write about it because I knew some of the rules. And so in the first novel, you have them as thugs, as young thugs. Mm. And in the second novel, you have them as young businessmen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, same, the same guys. <laughs> in, in, in other words, once again, we're in the world of watching from outside. In other words, that I live in the center of Dublin and there they are in the street and they've always got, you know, one telephone is, is about to be replaced by another and they're, <laughs> they're doing deals on the phone and they're, rug, they're going to rub you. And anyway, um, that you're, that you're able to do this business of the outside, the single outsider who's able to observe this world. He's, he's one of them, he's not one of them. He yeah. thinks they trust him because he was in school with them and they want someone who's more articulate than them, uh, who will be able to help them in, in their business. And so you have that lovely business which you know, belongs to the novel of the insider-outsider figure, of the, um, the he's, he's, he's more literate than them, he notices more than them, and he's also more self-deluded than them. And so you watch, I mean, you're talking about codes, his, his code of watching and their code in, in a way of, they have everything sewn up actually. Yeah. And so you, you have a sort of, I suppose you get a lot of literary energy from his insider outsider. Yeah, yeah, it's the ideal figure to narrate a novel. Um, because they both know the rules and are capable, first of all, of noticing that there are rules. Second of all, of feeling that there perhaps shouldn't be or that the rules should be different. Um, and once you've got that tension uh, sort of in the perception of your narrator, then you've got, you've got yeah, great literary energy comes out of that. And so you can draw pen pictures of each of them, including a fellow called Mark Foley. And you describe in school he had been a gamer and a comics geek. And, and actually what you're talking about here is, is a sort of um, help me with um, the narrator of Gatsby. Um, Nick Carraway. Nick Carraway. Nick, yeah, Nick, Nick in, the, in The Great Gatsby, he's both inside and outside. He's, he's a friend of Tom's. He can talk to Gatsby. He knows Daisy. He's in all the world, but yet he works for a living. And yet, you know, none of them really knows the extent to which he's charting what they're doing. And then it goes um, that Mark Foley, when I heard he'd gone to Trinity to study business, I wrote him off entirely. And now I was, of course, getting ready to write him off again as soon as I was rich enough to leave the lads behind forever. 
We might have been friends, Mark and I, if we hadn't been, in our own separate ways, such self-deluding dickheads. <laughs> what you're watching here, of course, is, the, um, is our hero, Ben, um, as a novelist, really enjoying pinning down these guys. And we're watching you, you know, in your own way, you know, just getting that rhythm there where you're coming to, you know, the, the, the dismissal of them. But, but, but obviously, really, really amusing yourself. Take me through Cleo. Yes. Um, Cleo is the, is the girl that Ben meets at the very beginning of his crisis. His father brings him in, takes him to the Greystones driving range and says, we're out of money and we have to cut you off. Um, and so he responds, as, as many of us would, by going out and getting drunk or trying to. Um, and he ends up at a book launch and he meets Cleo. Cleo, I made her an actress because I, I wanted to, I wanted, because I wanted to take the piss out of the Dublin theatre scene. Uh, <laughs> I'll be honest. Speaking of rules and cliques. Yeah, yeah. Okay, go on. Go on. Because, and I had one of the most fun pages of the book to write was the, uh, the play. Oh, that Cleo, that, yeah. It's yeah, really good. Puts on. That was one of the most fun because I have sat through a lot of my friends work in theatre and are actors and I apologise to them unreservedly for the portrait I made of their, of their world um, in the novel um, but it is also very funny um, to me and I had sat through a lot of bad plays and I had sat through a lot of ill-written um, but, but sort of liberally well-meaning um, you know agitprop theatre over the years and I, 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 I knew that because I wanted to write a funny book it was a primary motivation for me <clears throat> I knew that I would be able to get jokes out of out of actors. You can always get jokes out of actors. Um, but Cleo, <clears throat> Cleo is, is there structurally, functionally, um, so, so that he can misunderstand her and misread her. Uh, one of my favorite bits in the novel is when he catches a glimpse of the searches on her iPhone, and one of them is in a relationship with a narcissist, what do? Um, and he makes no comment on this. <laughs> but, he, but he should, because it's it's the definitive uh, analysis of, of him at that point in, in his life. And so I, 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 I gave Cleo as much of, uh, as much, I hope, likability and sanity and kindness as I could, um, and then had him repeatedly misunderstand that and abuse her trust and, and, and lie to her, because he is a self-deluding dickhead at points. Um, yeah, he also can watch things and um, define them very succinctly, there's this um, sentence really made me shiver when it says they dwelt perpetually in that sub-realm of cultural endeavor where what you were asked to admire is not the thing achieved, but the effort expended in trying to achieve it. I think all of us know that feeling. You write a book, you think, well, hold on, I, I spent a lot of time on this book. And you want to be admired for that, as though somehow the book isn't the thing, but your work on it. So I, I shivered a bit with that. Um, but I think any of us who have written plays really worry a lot. You know that play where you go to and there are three figures on the stage looking out at you and they're doing monologues at you in the lights 
and they're all dressed in black and she goes two steps from a this is poor poor Cleo two steps from Aleppo to a boat on a raging sea they're swept into a worldwide web of stress their lives a mess they're bloody dispossessed alone drone bombed and all the words rhyme as it goes along and then the act the, the, the guy takes over yeah you must have really enjoyed uh, I mean I mean it just puts an end to that sort of play I think you know well, that was my yeah. goal yeah <laughs> I'm afraid not though <laughs> the, the parents, the, the parents are lonely, yeah. and so it isn't. It's, it's, it, I mean, sometimes it's a comedy, and sometimes you watch as as the whole idea that, that there's a haunting in the book, which is the death of the uncle, and the father's coming from the farm, and the father's feeling somehow that everything he got, he got on his own, that he, he doesn't have any sense of his own entitlement. And the mother is just wandering in her own way, just drinking a lot and watching birds. And the relationship to the son is really distant. He feels as though he doesn't know them or doesn't want to be, doesn't answer their texts. And so, so, so it is about that idea of a, of a generation that, that, ha, that has really lost its connection to the previous generation. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's quite striking because to hear you say it, I realize it's true, they are lonely actually and and to the extent that they are they're they're in the book at all you, you see them either it's they're either together or they're alone they, they don't seem to have friends and they don't seem to have a social kind of context that much uh, I, I, that's that's quite interesting um i think that um that that generation of irish businessmen um who all lost it you know in, in the boom and we're all put on trial, and then there were ones who weren't, and some got away with it and some didn't. But they, there, is, there is a sense of them having a great connection to Serbia itself, in that Serbia in that war in the former Yugoslavia got blamed for everything, but it never took the blame. It never felt we caused the war, we were the worst ones. They always, they blame NATO, they blame Croatia, they blame um, um, Bosnia, uh, they blame Muslims, they blame everyone but they don't actually take responsibility for that war themselves. I mean, at least up to now they haven't. And um, it's one of the features of, of being there is you realize they actually blame NATO. And this comes out, but, but there, is a, there is a connection between this group of Irish business people who brought the country down in a certain way and um, this country that did the same thing and both of them feeling, why are you blaming us for this? Did, did, did you? I mean, in a sense, the, just the fact I, the, I was invited to Serbia in 2010, and I just said, "Sure, I'll go to Serbia," and it, it, I couldn't have gone anywhere better, in a sense, because of what Ireland was currently going through post 2008, and precisely because I was struck, I felt like an American going to, you know, wherever post-war Berlin or something, because a lot of Serbia in 2010, anyway, I have not been back, uh, is very economically, you know. And it's it's dilapidated. It's it's crumbling all that. And I felt I felt like I was coming from a rich, you know, uh, yeah, industrial contemporary country. And I, I also knew that that was an unusual experience for an Irish person to have. And I suddenly realised that what I could do was juxtapose these two countries, and hopefully bring out some, as you say, some of the strange parallels there. I mean, I was also extremely lucky because I was invited to various kind of literary events, and at one of these events, um, a, a, a Russian poet was given a literary award um, and there's there's a strong pro-russian current in in serbian culture um and it's you know they're they're very the pro-putin and they're very kind of you know there's there's ties between serbian nationalism and russian nationalism and i was unlucky enough to 
see this very formal presentation of prize to the Russian poet and then also to hear the more left-wing literary people, Serbian literary Serbs, who were there express disgust and disapproval um, that their, you know, the, the formal literary culture was, was approving of this strain of Serbian nationalism and avowing, publicly avowing t- ties to Russia, Russian nationalism and Putinism. And I thought, this is, this is great. This is great material. And I, it, it didn't make it into the final draft because I just couldn't organize the book in such a way that he would be at a literary prize giving. It just wasn't going to, it wasn't going to pan out. But it struck me that, that we had recently seen our own version of what Serbia had gone through, which was realizing that as a generation of patriarchal you know, uh, uh, businessmen um, had been revealed to be kind of rotten to the core and, and that the system that we all lived in was rotten to the core. Um, and yet there we were. We had our lattes and our iPhones and our Starbucks. And we were, uh, it just seemed too good a chance to pass up to kind of juxtapose those two countries and to try and bring out the kind of thing that you're, you're mentioning there. Um, has anyone asked you, and I'm not asking you, just in case you're wondering, I'm not asking you, but I'm wondering, <laughs> has anyone asked you, if you what, how you did the research about all the drugs? Uh, I have been asked that question, the yes. Officer, the British officer is not listening. <laughs> um, the American novelist Robert Stone, who used to hang out with Ken Kesey and, and the Merry Pranksters in the 60s, was asked later on in his career, what is your relationship to hard drugs now? And he said, I admire them from afar. <laughs> I will repair behind that answer, I think. Um, but, but, but the concoctions, I mean, some of the concoctions would really make your heart stop. And like there's never one Xanax or half a Xanax, it's two Xanax, it's three Xanax. And some of the stuff is new to me um, as well, I have to say, as I, well, at my age, it better be new to me. But, um, but as is said, I mean, it does make a very big difference to the book. I think it's, um, it's, it's that idea of his interest in consumption. It becomes enormous from someone who's just not doing his PhD, who's sort of living vicariously off his parents, you know, whatever money they give him, that actually he's now slowly moving into a world where he really does want, and he lists what he wants, but he also wants Nikki. He also describes what he wants. He wants a, there's a wonderful moment where he wants a 5K run every Saturday morning with her in <laughs> Phoenix Park. I just think, like, hold on. With, with all your like with with all your drugs as with you, and he's always sort of um, I was going to say stapling, but sticking drugs onto bits of the kitchen and bits of his underbelly and stuff. But um, but but there's another life he does dream of, yeah. um, it's, and it's a pure space. So all of this work he's doing with these um, barbarians, old barbarians, is really so that he, he he can find a clearing in the forest for himself. It's always about going. It's always about never seeing them again, never seeing anyone again. That there's some dream he has of a place that will be pure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this is in in recovery. They call. I mean, look. The only thing I've ever been addicted to is is cigarettes. And I've extrapolated. Um, I think you can learn a lot about being addicted to cigarettes. Actually, what addiction is and how it works. Um, but uh, I. I, I in recovery, they call this the geographical solution, the idea that if you remove yourself physically from where you are taking all these drugs or drinking or gambling, yeah, you will, it, things will change. And of course, it's a, it's a myth. Um, and I, it's in there in the same way that, I mean, drugs function in the book, I hope, I hope as a source of comedy, um, because if you take someone who's, whose mind is, has been altered and put them in a taxing social situation, that will be funny. Um, but they also function as a kind of objective correlative of, of denial, of the state of denial or, or of 
of refusing to look that he is in. Um, and this is, you know, I think this is, this is what most substances um, do for us, um, and sometimes usefully, um, in, mo in moderation, sometimes less usefully. Um, but one of the things that, I mean, I've known people who, who've taken a lot of drugs, and, and it, has, it has seemed to me that what they're doing is not looking at certain feelings that they don't want to have, and that, uh, that's one of the main things that this book is about. Um, you say you were addicted only to cigarettes. I, 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 would, I would suggest that you had other addictions, some of them to words, and um, certain sorts of words. And I speak, I think, for the entire audience here, um, not that we've discussed this in advance, but I know you have to think this, where um, someone's gums on page 238 are <laughs> I didn't have to, you know, I didn't have to look it up. I said, you mean gingivitis, which I take to be a disease of the gums. Um, so I love gingivitic gums. I love the hallway smell, well, you actually read this just now, the hallway smelled of mildew and of something else, a vague sepsis. You go, it smelled of sepsis? And, you, you know, you go on, uh, the water looked pro protozoic. Protozoic is great. Um, and I looked up protozoic, so I know all about protozoic. <laughs> and, uh, uh, the speed, oh, oh, this is great. This is the speed, meaning the, the, this, this is the drug speed. It was ramifying dend dendritically throughout my central nervous system, dendritically. I presume dendritically was the, the way in a tree all the, uh, all the rings go. But then when I looked it up, I found that... Crystallization. Yeah, it's, it's the... Come it's, on, Professor. It's, it's, you're making me realize I should not have used any of these words. What? Dendritically is where you, uh, it's the, it's, it describes the shape made by a, a structure as it crystallizes. Um, and it, it sort of spreads it outwards. Ramifies so, dendritically throughout. I thought that was pretty good. And then I, 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 this one, this one's really great. The, the hingeless seesaw, this is your effort to describe a children's <laughs> playground in Serbia. Um, the hingeless seesaw, right? Got that. The, uns, the unsprung rem, rocking horse, right? And then the tetanus infested slide. I just thought the tetanus, what the slide is in, is infected. Sorry, infested. No, it's infested. Yeah. The, the, the slide is infested with, um, with, with um, tetanus. Oh my God, tetanus. The only thing I know about tetanus is an anti tetanus injection. Mm -hmm. But, um, and on page 347, which I'm going to come to that, you actually have these, um, well, you have. You have a low, a low serotonin sky, a low terrace. So T.S. Eliot would love that, a low... Do you remember <laughs> the, opening of, of, uh, the opening of Proof Rock? Let us go there, and you and I, when the evening spread is spread out. out against the sky. And you must be going to say something beautiful now about it, like a patient etherized upon a table. And um, so that it was a low uh, serotonin sky, a mood disorder sky. So that, you know, so, that, so there's, there's all of this, I suppose, a sort of um, dark version of things um, finding its way, you know, in the lexicon of, of, of sort of um, like tetanus, gingivitis, uh, what's that other thing, sepsis. I mean, you're having a tremendously good time with, with giving this Ben a sort of dark vision where, where, you know, if he opens a door, there are going to be dead pigs hanging down and they're going to look like people. You know, like, like no matter where he goes, these sort of images are there. So they're sending him off to a sort of, um, I suppose, a dark underspace, a sort of um, 
a, a sort of Balkans of the soul, um, where instead of finding himself, he just finds all these terrible images and he has even worse dreams. So instead of being the paradise, you know, you know he's dreaming of the paradise, but he's actually in some sort of underworld. Yeah. So it is Ben in the underworld. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, and that's where the notes from underground kind of, you know, quotation in the opening paragraph, you know, is, is giving you a clue that this is going to be essentially a book about an inferno, you know, a trip down into the, into the depths of hell, um, which is, I mean, the hell is, it, all of these things that he's seeing are, they're there, but what he's seeing is his own soul, you know, when he sees a tetanus-infested slide, when he smells sepsis, when he opens the door and sees, but what he's seeing is himself, you know, I mean, not, yes. to get too, <laughs> yes. not to get too pretentious about it. But, but, yeah. but there, 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 I think there are moments also where, where you, can see, you can see his reading. Um, for example, um, he, he, there's a sentence, um, here the trees were dumping their melancholy garbage of used leaves as they did annually, like punctual householders. And once more, you have that sort of idea of that, you know, Beckett's the sun, Sean having no alternative. You have that, like, like this guy's been reading books. Um, and um, we're going to go to questions in one second, but just, just one last question for me is, um, are we ever going to have a novel with a good psychiatrist? You know, in other words, if, if that, this Dr. F it really goes very far, doesn't he, and sort of pushing poor Ben towards all sorts of Freudian, post-Freudian, sub-Freudian, Lacanian, like, like, he, like he really is, um, he really is quite evil in the way he's pursuing this, isn't he, Dr. F? Machiavellian, perhaps. I don't yeah, know if evil. Right, okay, because his right, ultimate yeah. aim is good, so he, but he believes that the, the end is justified by, by the means, and, yeah. or the means are justified to attain that end. Um, I mean, I invented a therapist. I invented the only kind of therapist that I thought would work on me um, if I were in that situation, which is essentially someone who bullied, tricked, abused, and, 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 and you know, broke me down. Um, because I didn't think, you know, I, I, you know, people, when people go to therapy, they often go unconsciously in search of just a better story to tell about themselves. Um, and therefore, they don't really get down to the root of what's going on. I know I've done this myself, God knows. Um, so I wanted, I didn't want to create a, a therapist who was going to, 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 you know, do that for either the reader or for the character. I wanted a therapist who was going to uh, be more than his equal and, and show him and show us precisely how, what, how much of a self-deluding dickhead he is. Um, and yeah, and also, I mean, he's funny. I mean, that's it. I wanted, you know, I wanted to make it funny. Yeah. Kevin, thank you very much. Thank you um, so much. Thank, thank you, you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.